Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The message title is not new. The concept is not new. But the emphasis that I want to give these thoughts today is maybe a little different than the way we've looked at this idea of right song, wrong side ever before. I really have asked the Lord, and I know it's his heart because this is the way he's put it on my heart. It's, uh, it's really his heart for this to be an encouragement to you, not a rebuke. How many of you know that sometimes pastors, even well-meaning, trying to get people stirred up can end up sounding like he's fussing and sounding like he's rebuking? Now, there's a place for rebuke. Paul said that to Timothy. And sometimes we need rebuke. As, as I've often said, sometimes all of us need a pat on the back. Sometimes it's high up, sometimes it's down low. But uh, that's not the message that I want to encourage. Now, you don't always know how to encourage. In some situations, it's very difficult to encourage. Uh, you heard about the man that uh, he and his wife had pastored for several uh, years. They were been in ministry four or five years, been married five or six years. And um, they... Uh, the husband was helping his wife clean the parsonage one day. And as he vacuumed under the bed, you know, you don't usually think about vacuuming under the bed, but as he vacuumed under the bed, he found a box. And as he pulled out the box, the strange thing to find under the bed, there were two eggs, chicken eggs, two eggs in the box and about $1,200 in cash. And he and his wife had no secrets. He knew they didn't have $1,200 to spare to be keeping it under the bed. So he worked up the courage and he said, honey, I, I just need to know why, why is this box under the bed? And she said, well, I, I've always wanted to encourage you. So whenever you preach a bad sermon or something I think you really blew, she said, instead of telling you about it, I just take an egg and I put it in the box. And he said two things. He said, well, thank you for being an encouragement. Thank you for being sensitive to my feelings. Um, and then he thought, mm, five or six years, only two eggs, that's pretty good. And he said, what's the $1,200? She said, well, every time I get a couple of dozen, I take them to the market and sell them. <laughs> of, of, of course, in recent months, that might not be that much. He still may have a good preaching record, uh, but I do want to encourage you. And there, was, uh, there were two David Wilkerson messages that so impacted me early in my ministry. One was, as we talked about last week, a letter from the devil. The other one, very akin to it, is uh, he preached a message called Right Song, Wrong Side. Now, again, uh, this isn't his message, but it's his idea. I, I would never take it upon myself to try to, to speak David Wilkerson's heart. Nobody could do it like he did. But I do want to share just a couple of paragraphs that were part of his original message that brought me through such a difficult time. 
This is how he began his sermon. Right song, wrong side. The children of Israel danced and sang a beautiful anthem when God delivered them from their greatest enemy, Pharaoh and the army of Egypt. The problem they had wasn't that morning's worship. They sang the right song. The problem is they sang it on the wrong side of the Red Sea. I think we have the same problem today. We, I think he used the word eventually, he said we eventually wind up singing the right song, but too often we sing it on the wrong side. Worship is as much an expectation and appreciation of what God will do as it is appreciation for what he has done. If only we could have the simplicity of faith that frees us to worship God when we face the bitterness of life instead of waiting for him to prove himself to us. He loves us infinitely, but he owes us nothing. Everything he does for us is his mercy and his goodness. Now, for those of you that may be new Christians, let me give a little background and context for you. After God's mighty hand of judgment comes down upon Egypt with the 10 plagues, uh, culminating with the death of the firstborn and the institution of Passover for Israel. For God said, when I see the blood, he said, slay the Passover lamb, put the, the uh, blood on the doorpost. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the idea of Passover. And um, after God had just destroyed, arguably, the greatest nation on the face of the earth to deliver his people who were helpless and hopeless, they left with great rejoicing. They left with great celebration. But it wasn't long before Pharaoh changed his mind and said, what was I thinking? His heart had been hardened. He had gone back and forth. Yes, I'll let you go. No, I won't let you go. And uh, that's the nature of the bondage of the enemy. Just never, never things seem to be settled. He said, I'm going to go back, bring them back into bondage, and their slavery will be worse than it was before. And the children of Israel find themselves going to a place where they don't know they're going, and they find themselves in a situation where they're literally between the devil and the deep blue sea. There are mountains surrounding them and the army in back of them and the Red Sea in front of them. Now, it's interesting. I wish I had time to talk about this. There have been recent um, geographical, or not geographical, geological studies uh, as to where the children of Israel crossed. And um, it doesn't matter. God can make it work anywhere in that deep sea. Uh, and it appears that one of the possible crossing sites literally is, is there's like a footbridge um, that's not very deep. I don't mean like a couple of feet. I mean, it was several feet. But if these archaeologists are right, God led them to the only place where they wouldn't have to like scale to get to the bottom of the sea and go across, there was like a footpath. And you say, well, God, are you saying God didn't really dry it? Oh, no, it was dry. 
They crossed on dry ground. They didn't cross on mushy ground. You know, when I was in college, some seminarians were teaching that it was the Reed Sea that was only six to eight inches deep and God led them through. And that, that was not right uh, for a couple of reasons. But even if it was, I'm amazed that God could dry up six or eight inches of an ocean and number two, and, and make it dry ground. And more than that, I'm impressed that he could drown Pharaoh and his army in, in a half foot of water. But um, I, I, I think this, these archeologists may be onto something because you gotta remember the old people that would have to go down a very steep embankment to the bottom of the sea. And, uh, you know, the people whose knees had been worn out from the, the hard work of slavery. There were little toddlers that would have to be carried. There were animals carrying carts. I mean, almost any place they went across, it would have been great difficulty to get down and then great difficulty to get back up. But if the archaeologists are right, down in the southern part of the Red Sea, there's a place, it's, it's almost like there was once a bridge there. And so the people, instead of having to do this, God had to dry up everything, absolutely. But instead of having to do this, they were able to just do this. And uh, God brought them across. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, we, we, I, I, to me, it's just another evidence of the care and mercy of God. But uh, so they had journeyed south, if the theory is right, to this place. And Pharaoh has pursued them and they are screaming and yelling. Uh, you know, it, it planted a seed of complaint that carried with them throughout their time in the wilderness. And they were like saying, Moses, what's the problem? Were there not enough graves for us in Egypt that you had to bring us out here into the wilderness? For, for God to kill us. We knew this was a fool's errand. This, we, we, we escaped Egypt only to die at the hand of Egypt a few miles away. And then you know the story how God spoke to Moses and Moses extended his hand and staff out over the sea and God caused a great wind to blow way up at the source. The, the water began to roll back and um, uh, the way it's, it's uh, depicted, the wind of God blew, and it's like uh, uh, God separated it, and wherever the water began, it was like a great wall of water that did not flow. Um, and God let them through, and when they got to the other side, God called the water back together. It drowned Pharaoh and his army, who had been held at bay by the cloud of fire that accompanied them during the, uh, the night and the, the cloud of cloud or the pillar of cloud that kept them cool through the day. I mean, God thought of everything. Deserts bitterly cold at night. God gave them a heater over all the camp, bitterly uh, hot in the daytime and God turned that fire into a cloud. So they had an AC unit, um, you know, and, and heating for them as they, as they journeyed. And, um, God then caused the waters to collapse back down upon the Egyptian soldiers and Pharaoh, and they were killed. And then all of a sudden, Israel begins to sing. They begin to rejoice. They sing a song that's so beautiful and powerful. Everybody jumped in. Moses did too. And I know of, of at least three songs that come from these words here. Let's just look at the song. 
Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. See, we know this was not just some shallow crossing. Um, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And the greatness of your excellence... (coughs) I'm sorry, that's a Hebrew word. It says, you have overthrown... Those who rose against you, you sent forth your wrath. It's cons- it consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation." Now, that's a beautiful song. That's a beautiful word of testimony. But I believe, as Brother Wilkerson posted and, and, and preached, I believe that although they sang the, wrong, the right song, can find no fault with the song, the problem is that they sang it on the wrong side. They waited until God rescued them from their complaining and from their doubt, some of them unbelief. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a struggle. Doubt is a struggle that comes from a believing heart. Unbelief is a set mind that says, I will not believe. Some of them were struggling with unbelief or had settled into unbelief, but others of them were doubting. How? 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 Uh, You know, you say, well, what difference does it make? I mean, God was just showing them. Yeah, I understand that. But can you imagine what it would have done to that generation and to the children of that generation who would later go in and inherit the land themselves? If they, when surrounded by absolute impossibilities, what if those children, instead of crying over fear because mom and daddy were crying with fear, what if a daddy or a papa had knelt down and say, kids, let me tell you what I've learned through the years. It ain't over till the fat angel sings. And God has never failed us. He's walked us through some tough places. The psalmist would put it this way. He has plowed our backs like furrows and we have thought there was no way out. But I want you to to know, holding that little grandson, little granddaughter on their knee, I want you to know that God cannot lie 
and God has never failed us. I don't know what we're going to do, but I want you to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might because my experience, look at Papa. He's got gray hair and no teeth. But Papa wants you to know my experience is that in the deepest, darkest, most hopeless situations, God Almighty is willing to do what he said and he's able to do what he said. You say, yeah, but that's what they said. Yeah, after they filled the lives of those children with doubt, with unbelief, with cynicism, with pessimism. It was, a, it was a horrific situation. But I want you to understand this. Please listen. This is the, the core and the crux of this message today. This is not about a rebuke. This is not about a rebuke. I, I, I may not encourage well. I maybe have sold eggs when I should have just dealt with it. I don't know. But this is not about the Lord rebuking us. I know that for most of my life, Whenever I fell short in any area, the result was, God, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm lower than worm's dung. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good. I blow it every time I get in a bind. I blow it. And, and every time I failed the Lord or even outright sinned and rebelled, I came away, uh, even when I was trying to do right, I came away with a sense of I'm just not worthy. I shouldn't be pastoring this church. I shouldn't be married to this woman. I shouldn't be, you know, I ought to change my name. I don't want to dishonor my parents with my inconsistencies and unfaithfulness. And that's the tendency that I had for a lot of the years of my life. No, you know, you say, Pastor, how did you handle critics? None of my critics compared to me. I, I was my worst critic. I was my harshest judge. And it was because I think I was unconsciously, it wasn't a conscious thing, but I think I was raised in a mindset, a theological mindset that all we like sheep have gone astray, you know, and all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we never really focused on the other side of that. But the Lord has redeemed us. But the Lord loves us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. I was an adult before I understand, understood there's nothing uh, that I can do that will make him love me more. And there's nothing I can do that will make him love me less. I knew it, but I didn't live it out. And I was constantly driven to perform. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a place for rebuke. Paul told Timothy that he needs to rebuke with all certainty and all deliberacy because there's a time that God's people need to be rebuked. There's a time we need to sit down and talk to ourselves. There's a passage, I know I'm taking it out of context, but it says Joseph gave commandment concerning his bones. He was talking about his burial. But I think sometimes we need to give us, ourselves commandment concerning our bones. You are going to get out of bed this morning. You are going to do what's right. You are going to be a good husband. You are going to be a good wife. Sometimes, you know, we can make it spiritual, but sometimes you just need to grab yourself and give a commandment concerning your bones. And, and sometimes we just need to be rebuked. But there is a place that God wants us to live where we aren't driven by his rebuke, but we are guided by his love. 
In the wisdom literature of the scripture, it said, don't be like the horse or mule that only goes where it's supposed to go because they've shoved a bit and bridle in its mouth. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what I think the average Christian is like. We are, you know, we, we feel like we have to have a bit and bridle put in our mouth to turn and to, and, to, and to make us go this way or that way, or maybe even given blinders. But God wants us to have a spirit that relates to him in love. And God wants us, I know that if, if you, balance is the key. If you don't get balance, then you're going to go into what we call hyper grace or, and I don't know that we can, <laughs> I don't know if, if there's such a thing as hyper grace because it is so wonderful, but what we do to grace makes it hyper grace where it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, that you're the righteousness of God in Christ. The Bible tells us to believe, then it tells us to behave. Believe and behave. I know there's a need for rebuke, but loved ones, I feel the heart of God during these days that are coming as he wants us to understand that should not be, rebuke should not be the driving force in our life relationship should be the driving force in our life. What did Jesus say? He said, he said, come to me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, you're weary and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you will find rest. You know, you take that sentence and you will find rest I think I thought that meant you'll be over your problems. Get out from under the yoke and be problem free. But he didn't say that. He said the problem is you've got the wrong yoke. You're living under the wrong conditions. You're living under the wrong circumstances. He said, you're still going to work. There's still going to be plowing that needs to be done. There's still going to be challenges before you. But when he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think what he's saying, I really do, is this. My yoke is a good fit. When you live life under my yoke, it is a good fit. It's a good fit. He said, and my burden is light, meaning my load is manageable. My load is manageable. My load is manageable. And that doesn't mean we won't have trouble. In fact, Paul said there are times we're in over our heads. He said, and there have been times I thought we were going to die. But he said, the load that God gives us is manageable. And he always breathes life into us. I remember playing peewee football when I was growing up. And I was so proud because the first time I'd ever had on a set of shoulder pads. The problem is I was so skinny, just so scrawny that uh, they didn't have any pads that fit. They, they put pads on me. And what I found out is that every time uh, I tackled or got tackled, you know, it was a... <laughs> my mama wanted to know what had happened. I had a perpetual bruise around my neck like I'd, you know been down to the hanging tree or something, watching too many cowboy movies. And she got concerned. She talked to the coach and she said, Miss Chitty, oh, he's real encouraging. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, this boy's just so scrawny. I don't know what we can do about it. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, you sure grew out of that. But 
I just wanted to play football and I just viewed it as a badge of honor. And one day the coach came and opened the back of his station wagon and he said, Steve, come here, come here. And I went and he, he had special ordered um, the division down, a set of their pads, and they fit me perfectly. And I still got hit just as hard and I still hit just as hard, but I never got, you know, horse collared again. I never got choked again. Why? Because I learned to wear a yoke that fit. I learned to wear shoulder pads that fit. And Jesus said, you're still going to have trouble, but I want you to live life in a way that your yoke is a good fit. It's a good fit and the load is manageable. A good fit and a manageable load. You know, my daddy taught me, I'm sorry, I've just got all these things, but it's just going through my mind. When we would lift heavy things, he would help me when I was little to lift heavy things. He said, get a, get a pulley, get a pulley. And I got a pulley and I thought, this is, I still can't get this up. I got it up a little bit. It would come crashing down. And he said, you've got the wrong pulley. And he went and got a bigger pulley. And then, man, I could one hand it when I got the right pulley. So that's the way Jesus wants us to live for him with a yoke that works and a pulley that is adequate. And he says, you will find rest for your souls. So this is not a push me away from the Lord message. This is a draw me closer message. And I want to caution you because I do think we have this tendency, especially Pentecostals and especially charismatics. We have this tendency to embrace a theology that focuses on what God does or what God can do. See, the Assemblies of God was born in a time when the church world was saying God might can do that, but he doesn't do that. He might be able, but he's not willing to do that anymore. We're in a different age. And part of our DNA is God can do anything we used to teach our children this song, my God is so great and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And boy, our children need to hear that. Grandmas and grandpas need to hear that. We need to believe that. We need to know that. But if we're not careful, we'll slip into a culture that measures a service and measures everything by what God does instead of what God says, instead of who God is. We, we tend to elevate his works. We don't dishonor his character, but we tend to elevate his works over his ways. Now you say, well, isn't the other just as bad to elevate his ways over his works? No, when you elevate his ways, when you elevate knowing the heart of God, works are going to follow. Works are going to follow. This is getting the, the cart ahead of the horse. And it's why Psalm 103 verse 7 says, he made known his ways to Moses, but his acts to the children of Israel. And I know, you know, you may be a Bible student and say, well, pastor, you've never heard of Hebrew parallelism. Sometimes the wisdom literature is written like that, where it says one thing, then it just says it again another way. Yeah, I, I know about Hebrew parallelism. I know that there are sometimes there's contrasting parallelism and comparing parallelism. But I also think the Bible just means what it says in other places, you know. I mean, even in the Psalms. And it says this, God was teaching what he could do and God was teaching who he was. And the children of Israel said, show me what he can do. And Moses said, show me your ways. 
when Moses got his chance of a lifetime, he said, show me your ways, Lord. Show me your ways. And God hid him in the cleft of the rock and let Moses see his back as he passed by. And that brought glory to God's name. That brought anointing to Moses' life. Scholars tell us that it's that same cleft of the rock that the Lord sent Elijah to when he was totally misunderstanding everything God was doing. He was looking for the fire. He was looking for the hurricane. He was looking for the earthquake. And God said, said Elijah, here, you know what I can do. I just devoured an altar with fire from heaven. You know what I can do, but I brought you to the place where I want you to know what I am, what I am about. And if we're not careful, we'll focus on what God does instead of what he is. You know, I don't know if maybe you were raised the same kind of setting I was. Woo, we had church today. Preacher didn't even get to preach. And I wondered if that wasn't insulting to our pastor, you know, but he was just such a pure soul. His concern, you know, my pastor, pastored the same church for 32 years. He was my pastor, 18 years till I went off to college. Hey, he's still my pastor, still my pastor today. And he's been in heaven for 25 years. No, 30, right at 30 years. Uh, but he always brought us to the altar. And I, I don't remember a sermon series by my pastor. I only remember one or two of his outlines. Um, but what I do know is that he always pointed us to God. He always herded us into the altar. And my pastor, Brother Stevenson, was far more interested that we know who God was than that we know what God can do. Because when you know what God, who God is, you're going to learn what he does. And I don't mean we have to choose between the miraculous and, and non-miraculous. And not at all. I'm saying they go hand in hand. And I'm saying if you don't bring in both, you're going to be off balance. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to measure your life by what just happened. You're going to measure your life by what you get in the mail. You're going to measure your life by your stock market report or your, or your uh, bank balance. You're going to look at stuff that happens, and that's going to be your gauge. But we need to have the balance of, yeah, you know, there, there, there's legitimacy in God blessing us. I believe we ought to pray for everybody that's sick that God would heal them. I believe we ought to pray for every difficulty that there will be a miracle. But we also need to understand that he is the Lord that sometimes not only does he lead us through, or, or excuse me, uh, from things, sometimes he leads us through things. Sometimes there's victory in the conflict. Sometimes there's victory out of the conflict. And we, we have to have this balance. It is utterly and completely necessary for us to find that. Because I want to tell you, I grew up in a setting. I'm part of that Pentecostal charismatic culture that I believe in with all my heart. But we have made people play games with their words. We have made people seek the wrong things. And we, we all believe in miracles, but some will not take anything except a miracle in their life. 
And I want to tell you, you've engaged in a battle. You've engaged in a game of words that does not reflect the New Testament life. It does not reflect the New Testament life. Let me read to you what I wrote about the background. When the Israelites refused to enter the promised land after hearing the report of the 10 faithless spies in Numbers 13, they wanted to choose new leaders to take them back to Egypt. That was Numbers 14. At this rebellion, God was going to strike the entire nation down and start a new nation through Moses. God said, that's enough. That is enough. I'm going to kill off everybody here, Moses, except you, your wife, and your boys, and we're going to start over. And it's going to be not the nation of Israel. It's going to be the nation of Moses. And of course, God, sometimes God says things to set us up. And he set Moses up and Moses said, Lord, you can't do that. Now, it, it, on one occasion, God, Moses said, Lord, kill them all. And God said, Moses, you know I can't do that. Now God says, I'm going to kill them all. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. In fact, if Moses and God had always been on the same page, Israel would not exist today. You know, So you know where I'm going with that. It was only through Moses pleading with the Lord for mercy that the Israelites were not destroyed. While Moses' intercession saved the Israelites from total destruction, it did not save them from judgment. Loved ones, please let me say this. It's another sermon altogether. But judgment is not necessarily terminal. Judgment is not necessarily terminal. Um, uh, cancer might be considered terminal unless it's located in a limb and you can cut the limb off. It's radical, nobody wants it, but it may keep cancer from spreading to the rest of the body, okay? But they had to go through judgment uh, even though they did not go through destruction. In Numbers 14, 21, 23, but truly as I live and as all, uh, and as all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. No adult Israelites who departed Egypt in the Exodus would be allowed to enter the promised land. At first glance, this seems like a particularly harsh punishment. However, the Lord was not judging the Israelites only for lacking the faith to enter the promised land. The Israelites had previously been tested, uh, had tested the Lord on 10 separate occasions. Well, previously nine. It was the cumulative effect of all those incidents that led the Lord to pronounce this judgment on the Israelites. See, I want you to understand, it's one thing for us to have a moment of doubt. It's even one thing for us to have a moment of utter and complete failure. But usually those moments are not terminal. Now, there are things we don't understand. I don't understand. Oh, I, I know some reasons that we could, could uh, project why Moses wouldn't allow, uh, I mean, God wouldn't allow Moses to go into the promised land after what appeared to be one failure. I, I, I don't know the reason. And we can say things like, well, with great responsibility, you know, or, or great power comes great responsibility. We learned that from Spider-Man and, 
You know, maybe that was the issue. Maybe there was something going on in Moses' life we, we don't know about. I know that he had his foot in the, in the river of anger several times through his life. I, I just don't know. But generally, whenever we have a, a failure, that failure is not necessarily terminal. But sometimes when we react the same way, over and over again, we're spiraling. I, can't, I don't know how to give you a verse for this, unless it's the one that says when someone is being often reproved and they stiffen their neck or stiffen, harden their heart, they'll be destroyed without remedy. Maybe that's what we're seeing here. We, we just don't know. Um, we, we, we know that Stephen recognized a pattern when he was about to be stoned, giving testimony to Jesus. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Which prophet did you not persecute? And man, you see the history of Israel was just spiraling down the same kind of reaction. We don't know, but we know that God said, I've given you 10 opportunities. You say, boy, I've, I don't know if, I've, if I would have batted 10 for 10. Hey, let me tell you something. Batting 10 for 10, in the major leagues, if you get three for 10, you get in the Hall of Fame. I mean, God doesn't expect us to bat a thousand. But when that's our, our default mode, you know what I'm talking about. It's not that you say, oh, I had a bad day. I wish I hadn't said that. We all have those. But every time you get a challenge, you say things that you shouldn't have said. Every time you have a difficulty, you default into the same old doubt and sometimes unbelief. And sometimes that doubt, that's a struggle that God works with us on, sometimes it, it develops into an utter despair and it becomes unbelief. Number one, they lacked faith before crossing the Red Sea. That's what we just read about. Number two, they complained over the bitter water at Marah. Number three, they complained in the desert of sign. Number four, collecting more manna than they were supposed to. God said, this is how it's going to work. And they said, yeah, but. And they gathered extra manna and what they didn't need went bad. They attempted to collect manna on the Sabbath and God it didn't allow it to work. He didn't give them bread on the Sabbath because the Sabbath, the whole purpose of the Sabbath was not, you know, the, 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 that they formed a union while they were building the pyramids or whatever in Egypt and decided we're only going to work six days a week. You know, they didn't have any choice in that. But what it was about was not them saying we deserve a day off. What it was about was God saying, I want you to not work this day. So that you'll know, and they, and they live from hand to mouth in those days. To miss a day of work might mean you don't eat that day. But God said, I want you to intentionally not work one day so I can show you that I will care for you. And he gave them twice as much on Friday as they got on Saturday, on, on the Sabbath. And they, they tried, they didn't believe God. They tried to gather and it, it, it didn't work. Number six, they were complaining over the lack of water at Rephidim. Uh, number seven, they engaged in idolatry and the golden calf incident. Boy, that's the big one to me. God was ready to obliterate them 
over that, but Moses got them an extension. And um, then they complained at Tabera, number nine, they complained over the lack of food. And then finally, number 10, they failed to trust God and enter the promised land. The right song on the wrong side was the beginning of a downward spiral that kept that generation from the inheritance that God had ready for them. Now, I want you to understand this. Salvation does not depend on us singing the right song. And salvation does not depend on us singing the right song on the right side. It has to do with our relationship with the Lord. A man may mistreat his wife, but legally they're still married. But loved ones, you don't want to live in a marriage union because it's legal and binding. You want to live as husband and wife because it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. And it's two lives melded together. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that if you're guilty of what we're talking about today, you need to get saved again or you're going to hell. No, but I am saying this, it affects your reward in heaven and it affects your relationship here on earth. Now, let me give you three simple steps. We could end the sermon here, but you know I'm not going to quit this, this soon. I, I want to tell you the, the, the simple surface level, and then I want us to dig a little deeper. You say, why are you doing that, Pastor? Because most diamonds, most precious minerals, even something as common as coal, you don't get it, you don't see it just laying around. You dig. And most of what you get from God, you dig. Now, His grace and mercy... He daily loads us with benefits. But I have found that the, the deeper things of God are things that we have dug for, not to earn them, but because we love him and we want to draw closer. Um, when Paul spoke to the Philippians, he said, everything that I thought was on my positive list, he said, I moved it from the asset list to the liability list. And this is what he said, I've suffered the loss of all things. And what that means is not that he had taken a vow of poverty because he said, I know how to be abounded and I know how to be abased. He said, I can live all over the chart, you know. Um, uh, he, he said, I, I, I know how to, to live both ways. He said, I've learned to be content wherever I live. But this is what he said. He said, I have realized that what was once important to me is no longer important to me so that I might win Christ. Now, I read that as a freshman in college and I thought, well, if anybody had won Christ, if anybody was sure of their salvation, Paul was. What did he mean, win Christ? And I began to dig, I began to, 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 to go deeper and what I found out is that in the era of the early, you know, like King James English, when you use the word win, it was often used of people we would call miners that would go underground. They had to go underground and dig out what they were searching. And that was called winning the coal or winning the copper, or winning the silver or gold. It was a phrase meant that we went in and we got it. And I believe that's what the translators uh, saw in Paul's words. And Paul said, I, my life is turned upside down because I am willing to go deeper. I'm not willing to live. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee concerning the law. He said, I'd done everything right, but I found out that I'm gonna give my life to digging deeper. 
to digging deeper. You know, in the days of growing up in my church, with some of the things that might have been out of balance, there was one thing that was really in balance. And I'll always be grateful to my church and my pastor for doing this. The altar was emphasized. And I, I remember I was, I was that guy, you know, the junior high kid that when he'd see something in the altar, uh, he'd, he'd go to pastor and follow pastor around and say, pastor, what's going on? What, why is, why is, you know, you told us to rejoice in the Lord and Sister Ward's over here crying. If she's rejoicing in the Lord, why is she crying? And, you know, I'd ask questions like that. I remember one time over in the other building that there was somebody that the Lord impressed me to bind a spirit in them. And I don't usually do that, not because I don't believe in it. I do believe in it, but that kind of thing usually happens, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one setting rather than in the altar. And I began to take authority over the spirit. I was kneeling right in front of the platform and uh, this person began to try to bite me, you know, like lashing out at me, trying to bite me. And uh, it, it was kind of terrifying, not to me, but a couple of people backed off. And then somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And it was my youngest daughter. She said, what's wrong with that guy? You know, it was like, explain to me what's happening. And I explained to her and she was fine. That's the way I was with my pastor. You know, what's going on here? I said, if, she's, if she knows the answers in the Lord, why is she crying? And my pastor went down, uh, sat down with me on the altar and he said, because sometimes even though we know the answer is in Jesus, he said, we have to keep digging so that what we know in our head transfers to our heart. I don't know if he knew what the word win meant, but my pastor was saying the treasures that we need are sometimes things we dig out. And it's not because we've earned them. God in his wisdom says, I'm putting this stuff below ground. And when you dig, you are going to know me better from the digging. Well, let's hurry on. Y'all are going to have to do better than this. Or we're not going to get through. Um, let me give you the simple steps. Uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but I liked it. I heard someone say, learn to reign in your words in order to reign in your words. Now, if you notice the spelling, they were saying like you rein in a horse or, or rein in a, a team of horses on a wagon. You pull back to stop and control, to slow down. He said we need to learn to control our words so that we can reign in life instead of being dictated to. Number two, give God time to move in your situation. Elevens, I know we all know that God can. I, I know that. And we all are driven by guilt. By, we ought to know that. No questions asked. But I, we all know that God, you know, we need to give God time to move. This is the biggest problem I've had with God through the years. I know God is able. I even believe God's willing. I just have not been able to help him understand the urgency of time. It's, it's my biggest struggle and I've often said, I'm not being disrespectful to those of you that are new here. I've often said, you know, Lord, let me help you. Let me explain this to you. And I'm so thankful that he ends up explaining something to me. Sometimes he doesn't, but usually he does. And sing the right song on the right side of your problem. We must never allow our carnal mind to control what we know and believe in our hearts. 
when we cave into this, it doesn't send us to hell, but it, it erodes faith's foundation and it erodes, I won't say it erodes the relationship, but it, it damages the relationship. Um, now let's go a deeper level just very quickly in the time that we've got left. And you say, okay, seven life lessons. You usually spend about 15 minutes on each life lesson. Um, is it okay if I order pizza? I promise you I won't spend 15 minutes on all the life lessons today. I've given them to you and I wrote them out in detail because I want you to take this and let it be your homework. I want you to take the next seven days or probably the next seven weeks and say, I'm going to work on these things. One a week, one a day. One a day is probably not enough time. But one a week, I'm going to focus on this. And I'm going to ask the Lord to help me learn to sing the right song on the right side. It, it's a process. It's a journey. And we're all learning. We're all learning. Don't be driven by guilt. Do not be driven by guilt. Here's number one. When we fail God as Israel did, we're losing sight of the final result that God wants to accomplish, the glory of his name throughout all the earth. We've got to remember, and I know we know this, but we've got to know this. It's got to go from here to here. Or maybe I'm saying it backwards. Maybe it needs to go from here to here. Because I think these things are in our heart. We just need to get them in our thinking. Uh, so it, it, some of us... Some of, we all have problems moving it from one place to the other. Whether it starts here or here, you can let that application fit you as it, as it will. Uh, God is not just working for us, but he is working in a way that his name will be glorified through all the earth. He said, you are salt and you are light. And you don't even know you need salt until you've got something that's bland and tasteless. And life can be like that sometimes. So sometimes God puts us in a bland and tasteless situation so that we can flavor the place we are and preserve the place we are. You don't even need light until you're in darkness. And that's why some of us are in dark places. We think God has forgotten us. We think we're being punished. No, there are other people in darkness and they need a light. And God says, I know who to call because they're salt and they're light. See, you say, well, I just don't believe, I just don't believe God works that way. I, I, I believe God just wants me to be happy. He does. But the conditions for happiness are not always what we, God thinks they should be. Um, I, I had a friend that used to say this, I don't believe God will ever has anything to do with sickness. I believe God will kill you, but I don't believe God will make you sick. And, um, and you know, the, the Holy Spirit came on me one day and I said, you know the reason you say that? And he, he said, why? And, and loved ones, let me just say, I, I was proven right. So I, I wasn't just being a smart aleck. I said, you're saying that God will kill you, but God won't make you sick because you are in sin and you desperately need to sound spiritual. And as long as you're living your testimony is saying, God must be all right with me. He hadn't killed me. But I said, God will cause all kinds of trouble and judgment to come into our life. And uh, I said, and it's because of this, this, God showed me three sins in his life. That's not my modus operandi. Uh, you know, I, I know what it's like to knock on somebody's door and their countenance drop. You know, oh God, what have I done? You know, uh, I, I, uh, Ron Cox's wife, uh, Suzanne, 
Suzanne, she used to talk about whenever David's letter, David Wilkerson's letter would come every month or six weeks. She'd say she'd leave it on the table and kind of circle the table for several days. What's the prophet doing writing a letter to me? What's the prophet going to say this time? You know, I, and I know what it's like to have that, that kind of fear. But uh, I, I, I said, you, you've got to understand, I said, you are creating a false image by, by spouting a false doctrine in order to justify you and your sin. And, and he didn't say anything. He, he just kind of walked away. And later he said, Pastor, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And we don't need to go into details. It, it's not important except to say that God will work for his glory and we often misunderstand things. And he, he, I've said it before and I'm going to say it one more time. I will never say it again unless I, I, it comes to mind. But um, <laughs> Jesus died to make us holy, not to make us comfortable. And David, I've, hey, I've been in my devotion this morning, I read Psalm 23. And as I read through Psalm 23, I, I came to the part where it says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I've always thought till just a while back, I always thought surely was just, yeah, I, I believe this. You need to know it too. But that word was so much more than that. You know what David was saying when he said surely? It, it, it's a simple English word, but it's a complex and, and, and encompassing idea. This is what David was saying. And when the Lord, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. He leads me in ways I don't understand. He takes me places I don't want to go. He'll even take me to the valley of the shadow of death. I want to be away from my enemies, but sometimes he'll put me right where my enemies are. But he gives me food and prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And not only does he take care of me in the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. And then he said, surely... And what he was saying by surely is this, when I look back on life and the day will come when you will look back on your life, surely this is, you'll look back and say, I thought I was dying. I thought the devil was winning. I thought my enemy was prevailing, but everything that happened to me was goodness and mercy. Boy, David wasn't just saying, surely. No, he was, it wasn't just a bridge to the last verse. David was saying, we will look back and see everything we have been through, everything we have fought, every struggle we've had. We're going to look back and say it was all goodness and it was all mercy. And you say, pastor, you don't know what's happened to me. Not all of that is good. Not all of that is mercy. Well, it's probably more mercy than you think because it could have been worse. You're still here. But I understand what you're saying. There are things that happen in our life that are not good and don't seem to have anything to do with mercy. I understand that. But what David understood and <clears throat> what is a clear teaching of the New Testament is that God runs the greatest composting business of all time. He takes stuff we don't want. He takes stuff that's bad. He takes stuff that's gone bad. He takes stuff that we throw in the rubbish and he puts it in his holy compost heap and it turns into something that produces fruit, luscious fruit, big fruit, quality fruit. See, God says 
And, and, and David says, look, I know not everything is good. And even sometimes, we'll, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, even sometimes the greatest blessings of life come from our greatest failures. <laughs> you know, God said, you're going to name him Solomon, but I'm going to call him Jedidiah. Because Jedidiah means loved of the Lord. He said, this is a special child, and I love this child, and I'm going to bless him. But when you stop and think about it, Solomon's very existence is owed to the sin of David. Now, that doesn't mean we sin and God will say, oh, I'll, I'll bless it. No, you know, Paul answered that to the Romans in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But God is such an effective composter that things that we never wanted to see again go through his process and his motto you know, I, I love when a business has a good motto. In Chicago, I noticed a, an outdoor toilet. You know, I, I loved it. I forget the company name, but it said, we're number one in the number two business. And I thought, I will always remember that. And I have, it's been 30 plus years and I've always remembered it. But this is God's motto. He says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. See, he's able to make it all work together and bring glory to his name. Now, let's, let's hurry. I knew y'all were going to do this. Singing the right song on the right side is not about positive attitude or positive confession. There is a place for that. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to come and say, Pastor, you, you, don't, you don't believe that our confession matters. Of course I do. I believe attitude matters. There's a place for that. But we must never play word games in matters of faith. We must never reduce the Christian life to trying to perfect our confession. That's not New Testament Christianity. We need to have the right confession and we need to have a faith-filled heart. But loved ones, I'm telling you, when we get to heaven, we are going to be amazed at how much time we wasted on the wrong thing. Number three, such endeavors can be manipulative and may often result in fatalism, elitism, or worse. I've known people that are struggling with sickness. I've known people that are struggling with problems, struggling with a, a failing marriage. And they've gotten, the advice they've gotten is, oh, just, just don't confess that. Don't, don't, don't praise the devil. No, they need desperately somebody to talk to them. They desperately need somebody to see where they are and help them through it. And uh, I'm not going to say that because it's too easy to misunderstand. The focus, number four, is on an expression of trust. God will deliver us from some things. Read Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, and it says it explicitly. Some were delivered from, but some were delivered through. Some were delivered from, some were delivered through. He said, some were delivered by God shutting the mouth of lions, but others, like Isaiah, were sawn in half, sawed like a piece of wood, sawn in half. The path of faith takes us down a, a, a path where sometimes God will say, I'll keep you from, sometimes God says, I'll keep you through. 
And that cannot be disputed. That cannot, or it can be disputed, but that cannot be proven wrong. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. David said, Lord, thank you for being faithful to me in my many afflictions. More later, it's an expression of trust that says, even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Number five, even if God delivers us, we need to understand that sometimes it's because of our trust, but sometimes it's not because of our trust, but in spite of our unbelief. Uh, it, this, this is about so much more than confession. This is about so much more than saying the right words. I, I know this is subjective and I know I can't prove this, but the time in my life when I think my faith was on steroids and my confession was exactly what it ought to be. I did everything the way the faith teachers told me to do it. I did everything. I don't think, I, it's the only time in my life I don't think I had any doubt whatsoever about the thing I was asking for. No doubt whatsoever. And I brought it to the Lord and one day during prayer when I was telling the Lord how faithful I was and exclaiming what I wanted him to do, and I, re I really meant it, I, Lord, this is what I want you to do. The Lord said, you know I love you. And I said, that's right. And I thought, and that's why you're going to do this. You love me. You know, I, one of my favorite verses was, he's crazy about me, you know. And he is. He's crazy. God loves us all so much that every one of us feel like he loves us better than anybody else. That, that's, that's perfect. You know, I, I, I read a book by a man one time. He had four kids and he dedicated it to his children. And in the first dedication, first child mentioned, he wrote some things. He said, I suppose you know that not only are you firstborn, my firstborn, but you're my favorite child. And I went ballistic. I said, you do not say that. Even if you feel that way, I said, you can't say something like that. That destroys the other children. And boy, I thought, I'm not even going to read this book. So I finished his dedication. I was going to see how he made it up to the other children. And to every other child, he wrote something specialized to them. He said to the second one, he said, don't tell your siblings, but you know you're my favorite child. And to the third one, he said all this wonderful stuff. Then he said, you're my first girl, and I'm sure you know that that makes you my favorite child. And he called all four of his children his favorite children. And I, I heard in an interview one time, all four of them said, I believe it. I believe it. I'm his favorite child. And, and instead of arguing, they said, yeah, me too, me too, me too. God loves us in such a way that every one of us feels like his favorite child and in a way every one of us is. But God, well, let me, let me go on because I have to stop. God, I want you to know God is not put off by your struggles. When the man brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and the disciples could not cure him, we like to focus on the failure of the apostles. We like to focus on the failure of the Father. Jesus said, all things are possible to one that believes. And the Father said, I believe, but help my unbelief. We, many of us serve a God that would have sent him home, said, fast for two weeks, come back, and if you can get your words right, then I'll heal your son. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. He said, I'm in a struggle. Now, God doesn't want us to be like that. James tells us to not be double-minded. And the word that's translated double-minded is actually the phrase two-souled. 
two-souled. It means that we think two ways. My dad used to tell about a, a mule. He heard Harry Truman tell a story. He said about a mule that starved to, to death surrounded by hay. And I said, Daddy, how could he starve to death if he's surrounded by hay? He said he had a beautiful bale of hay on this side and a beautiful bale of hay on this side. And he just looked, he couldn't decide which one to eat. And he starved to death. And that was Truman talking about Congress not making up their mind to do something. And I thought, boy, that's amazing. But you know what? That's, that's, that's not uncommon, as you might think. I'm not talking about with mules, donkeys. I'm talking about with us. We, he says, don't be two-souled. Don't be double-minded. He said, because that's like a ship that is tossed rudderless without sails. He says, that's not how to receive anything from the Lord because you'll be unstable in all your ways. But at the same time, I want you to know, we need to, we need to believe God. But at the same time, when we struggle, we, we bring our struggles to him. Lord, I believe but I, there's this nagging thing in my brain. You see, we, we think of God like uh, being a father that hears his son crying out in the woods who has stepped into a bear trap. He's gotten off the path and he stepped into a bear trap and the son is screaming and the son is bleeding out and he's saying, Daddy, help me, Daddy, help me, Daddy, help me. And Daddy comes and says, First of all, I want you to calm down. I've taught you that nothing is achieved by emotion. Please don't call me daddy. That's common and vulgar. Call me father. And as soon as you can understand that I've told you not to wander from the path, but you wandered from the path, you're in this mess because you've disobeyed me. As soon as you can calm down and make this right, then I'll step in and see what I can do. Oh, you say, that, that man needs to be shot. Oh, I agree. I agree. But you see, if your child or mine was in a bear trap, we're not going to give them a lecture about staying on the path. We're not going to give them a lecture that you got into this situation because you didn't obey daddy. We, we, all we're going to hear, I, I know, I'm, all, all we hear is the word daddy or papa. And we are there. We are going to do. There may be correction that's needed. There may be all this kind of stuff that's needed and lessons need to be learned. But the first thing we're going to do is get that trap open, even at the expense of ourselves. We're going to get that trap open some way. And we're going to get that child to the doctor. We're going to get that child. We're going to put a tourniquet on that child. We're going to get him to the doctor. We're going to do everything we can to, to mitigate what's happened to that child, even though it was the fault of that child, perhaps. That's the way God is. He's not put off by our struggles. And here's the last thing. The path of love deepens trust more than we can imagine. There, there, there is something about walking with the Lord that you learn things you can't know except theoretically. You know, I used to walk around, I'd see a couple, you know, 18, 20 years old, 22, I'd see them kind of holding on to each other and I'd say, ah, oh, you know, ain't love grand. Love's wonderful. They've got so much ahead of them. I tell you what I love now. I love to see a little old man wearing a golf hat, 
letting his wife hold on. And, and when a strong wind blows, they both kind of stop and hold each other because they don't want either one to be blown over. He's lost his muscles. He's lost his teeth. She doesn't care. He's, she's lost her shape. Traded it in for a new one. But he doesn't care. He may not be able to throw a punch with as much force as he used to, but he'll still take on a, you know, a circle saw for his wife. She sees him still as her knight in shining armor. I want to tell you something, buddy. That, that's not past the age of passion. That's when passion is just really getting defined. And it's that way with the Lord. You know, you might say, well, I don't, man, I don't want to be like that. Oh, believe me, you do. I I was walking somewhere the other day and I was holding Jackson's hand and I was having trouble moving. Um, my, My joints are just, every day my joints say, I told you. I told you. Told you not to slide into second that way. I told you not to die for that ball that way. You know, I mean, I am paying the price for thinking I was invincible. And my joints taunt me every day. And I was having a rough time that day. It took me kind of a minute to get up. Okay, once I get going, but sometimes just getting up. And I got in, I'm seeing a lot of people nodding their head, you know. <laughs> and I, I said, just daddy had let, had let Jackson out of his seat and he was waiting for me. I said, I said just a second, buddy, I'll be, and I kind of, eased my way out of the seat, took his hand. And I said, I'm sorry. I said, Papa just needs a little extra time sometime. And, and uh, we were holding hands and, a, and it was a storm coming and a gust of wind came up and he grabbed hold of me, wrapped his hands in my coat I was wearing and held on to me. And I said, don't worry, buddy, I got you. And he explained to me that he wasn't worried about blowing away. He didn't want me to blow away. <laughs> But loved ones, I want to tell you, that's the, the, the verses that are the word that Paul spoke. It just means more to me than it ever has. He, he said this. He said, I have found, even though God says no. See, when I was talking about the time my faith was at its peak, God said, you know, I love you. And then I said, yes, Lord. And then he said, I'm saying no to this request. And I... I thought there's nothing left for me to do except trust. Uh, Justin, would you come let me use you as an illustration? I, I, I love what Paul said. He said, I besought the Lord to take this away from me, but he did not. He said, and so as a result, I've learned this. When I am weak, that's when I am strong. When I am weak, that's when I am strong. So that's why I'm saying, loved ones, we need to stop bad-mouthing God when he works in ways we don't understand. You remember the, the angel of the Lord that Jacob was wrestling with? He said, let go of me. It's time to go. It's, it's, I've got to go. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel of the Lord could have said, all right, Jacob, I bless you. I give you this, that, or the other. Oh, wow. 
But I tell you what the, the, the angel of the Lord did. Instead of doing all of those things, he did a funny thing that we, we don't do on camera, you know, but he touched his hip. Now, Justin, I'm going to shift characters. I'm going to be Jacob because you're stronger than I am. He touched his hip and his hip went out of socket and Jacob went from this to this. And when he fell on the angel of the Lord, that's when his name was changed from trickster to prince with God. And when Paul said, when I understood that God's ways are higher than my ways, thanks buddy. When I understood that God's ways are higher than my ways, I realized I'm not going to worry about my weakness anymore because in my weakness, I am strong because now I rest in him. Loved ones, we're out of time. There's other things I'd like to say, but we'll have to save them for another Sunday. But I want to tell you, some of you are facing sickness, financial problems, mar- <coughs> excuse me, merit, <coughs> excuse me, marital problems. What? And you're trying to fight this in the energy of the flesh. And what you need to do is just say, Lord, I trust you, bless you. you you're probably never going to walk the same again. When he touches your hip, you're probably never going to walk the, the same again. But you don't need to. You don't need to. Because he will sustain you. And he will hold you. A pastor used to say, when he was old and gray and I was going into ministry, he said, I don't know if you're going to understand this, but don't trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp. And then he explained to me, if they haven't been to that place with God where they just abandon themselves to Him. Father, help us. Help us with our struggles. Uh, ministry team, if you'll come to the front, please. We, we don't want to walk in unbelief. And Father, may it not be so, but help us to even do warfare early by dealing with our doubts. Help us to learn to sing the song on the right side. Oh, I know, you're going to deliver us. You're going to help us. And if you don't deliver us, you're still going to take care of us. We're going to sing. I know that, Lord. We're going to sing. It's in our hearts. But Lord, would you teach us to sing it early so that we declare to heaven and hell that our trust is in you, Lord. Like Job said, I lost everything, but even if he slays me, I trust him. I trust him. Lord, in these days, in this present time, teach us to trust you even when we don't understand what you're doing. I ask in Jesus' name.